Well, thank you as always to our worship team for leading us so well. Um, I have to be honest, as I was uh, engaging in the worship, I was so enjoying it that at one point I began to get ready to sit down thinking I'm looking forward to the message to then realize, <laughs> yes, I am still preaching. So thank you for, for that moment. Uh, I do want to say it's great to see all of you here. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Uh, this week is one of my favorite weeks of the entire year, not just to preach, but in general. Uh, one of the reasons I love it, especially on a Sunday, is you can definitely see as people are walking just a little bit slower. You know, you can almost see all of us weighed down by the turkey and the gravy and the, and the mashed potatoes. But we made it. We're here. Uh, and it's really good to be able to worship together. Uh, one of the reasons I love this week in particular is some of the traditions that we have on last Thursday. I know that for a lot of believers especially, we take that time to go around and just recognize what are the, some of the things that we have to be thankful for? Right, what are some of the, the highlights of this past year that we can look back and say, God, I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life. And I know that we did that even this last Thursday with some friends from church, and I'm sure a lot of you did that as well. There's all kinds of things that we're typically thankful for. You know, for some of us, that's um, the good health that God has finally given us. Maybe you've had a struggle the last couple of months or years, and so you recognize that it's a joy to now be in a place in which you're, you're feeling better. Uh, maybe some of you have had some type of promotion at work or something has gone really well in which you're able to say, God, I'm thankful for what you've done, even in my job, to, to allow me to be in the place that I am now. For a lot of us, too, we're just grateful to be able to spend time with family, right? Maybe you have uh, family and friends that are living across the U.S. or maybe in different parts of the world, and this is the one time this year that you're able to see everyone, whether it's a cousin or a daughter or a grandchild, and we say, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be able to be uh, together. We have many reasons that we thank God for what he's done in our lives, but I'm curious, how many of us have taken moments to thank God even for the hard times? To say, Lord, I'm thankful that you brought this difficulty into my life this year. And maybe you, you had really good health and then you've lost it. And this year was actually an, an entire struggle just to get through and actually make it to Thanksgiving. Where you're able to say, God, thank you even for giving me this particular hardship. You know, maybe you've had family together for many years, but this year things are just a little bit more estranged and the family's not together. And are you still able to thank God for that? Or, or maybe your job has actually taken a sour turn. What you had or what you thought was going to be a great job and career is suddenly going down the toilet and you're beginning to wonder uh, what on earth is going on. See, there are many times where as we're going through life, it's not always going to be the peaks, but it's actually going to be the valleys where you're going through hardship. And yet what we're seeing in scripture is that we still have reason to praise and thank God. I think about last week's sermon from Pastor Rich, a wonderful message about the importance of spiritual pruning. And even there we were saying that as believers, things aren't going to always go nice and dandy. They're not always going to be this wonderful, wonderful reality that we want. We are going to experience hardship and suffering. Of course, for the name of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, as we're seeking to make him known, you're going to be persecuted for that. But there's all kinds of reasons that as believers we go through difficult times. And I love how Pastor Rich uh, alluded to James 1 several uh, times in last week's message. The importance that we can have joy even in our, in our hardship. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this 
morning. The fact that as believers, we don't only see the good in what's going on in our hardship, but we actually have reason to rejoice, to say to God, thank you. Thank you for bringing that hardship and trial into my life. Thank you for allowing me to experience it because I know it is being used for my good. And so you can think about this message as an unofficial part two to what we heard last week. How believers should respond to and think about our hardships. And so this is a passage that I think we know very well, but it's also a passage that we often neglect to actually practice as we're going through difficult times. See, the reason that Christians can be thankful is for one very simple reason. We can be thankful in our suffering because we are being sanctified in our suffering. As Christians, we know that God is working in us in unique and powerful ways that we should be thankful for. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word for us this morning. And you'll notice that in verse 2, it opens up with this call to joy. Now notice how it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I think there's really two key words that we need to focus on here as we're getting started. The first one is that verb, count. It's to consider or think or to regard. It's the idea of how you're choosing to view a person or a circumstance or something that you're going through. It's your perspective and your worldview on what's happening in your life, right? Big picture, we often describe people as being a glass half full or a glass half empty, right? Optimist or uh, pessimist, whatever the other word is. I tend to think there are more glasses out there, so let's grab more. But, you know, we all have different ways of seeing different circumstances. And that's our perspective of how we're counting or perceiving or viewing our circumstances. It's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Right, what is he saying there? It's that every single one of us has a natural way that we're seeing life. We tend to be self-focused. We tend to look at ourselves, but you have to choose to view others as being higher in priority than you. You have to see other people's needs and desires and what would benefit them beyond what would benefit yourself. And that's not something that's natural for us as sinners. It's something that we have to choose to do. We have to develop this perspective in which we are thinking regarding other people as more important than us. And that's how we're, this is also what we're supposed to do today when it comes to joy. That's what James is trying to get at. See, joy is different than how we would often define happiness, but it's also very similar. Joy is just the idea of gladness and delight and contentment that's rooted in God. 
It's a type of happiness. It's a type of gladness of a soul that's not affected by our circumstances, but it is rooted in who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And I think oftentimes Christians can take the idea of joy a little bit too far, you know, where we say, oh, a joy is nothing like happiness, right? So never think of joy being this type of emotion, but joy can have emotions at times, right? There are uh, seasons of life where our joy is seen in how we are actually responding visibly and emotionally. I think one example of this is Matthew 2, verse 10. And this is where you have the wise men who've traveled from the east and they've been wondering where the Messiah is. And finally they found him. Here's what it says. It says, when they saw the star, that is the star that was showing them where the Messiah was lodged, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right? These were people that knew the Messiah, the, the, the deliverer, the king of Israel was coming. And so they wanted to find him. And when they finally found him, they rejoiced. They wouldn't have been the kind of people where they're just robotically thinking, this is a good thing, right? Like where they're just like processing information. That's not what joy is. But joy is a sense of real delight and gladness of the soul because of what's taking place in our lives. And so here's what's interesting about this passage, right? What is James calling us to do? He says, you have to rejoice in your trials. I I love the CSB translation of this verse because it says this. It says, consider it a great joy when you experience various trials. And this is not an option for Christians, Right? James is saying, God is saying that as a believer, you have to be able to rejoice in the hard times of life. You have to be able to experience whatever ups and downs are going through your life and say, God, thank you for this. I, I praise you for this. This is a good thing. And notice he doesn't specify that this is just for those trials that are easy for you. Right? He doesn't say, well, if it's something that you've experienced a lot that you're okay with, in those things you can rejoice, but the really, really hard things, no, no, it's okay if you complain. Right? He's saying in various kinds of trials, it's the idea of every type of thing that you're experiencing, right? And maybe that is a coworker at work. Maybe that's a circumstance in your life that you just really don't think is ideal, right? Maybe it is that you're being persecuted for your faith because you're trying to live out the gospel of John and be a light to a dark world. Whatever the reason is, you're going to experience all kinds of suffering, and in every single one of these, our call is the same, that we must be joyful, we must rejoice. We can't put a limit on what that is. There's so many examples of this, but I love the example of Paul, again, in the book of Philippians. If you know the context here, Paul is now in jail for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, right? There were people that did not like what he was doing, and he was thrown in jail for misunderstandings. He was in a very difficult situation. Uh, the, The jails of that day are nothing like the jails of today. If you've ever been in one or seen one for different reasons, right, you'll know. You have three meals a day, if not more. You have cushy beds, you can get a TV, you can have all types of luxuries and things that make it an enjoyable experience. But joy, or um, what Paul was going through in jail is nothing like that. It was a horrible, dank place that people would hate being in. And what makes it worse is that in this time, Paul understands that there are his enemies, people that hate his guts, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to spite him and make him feel bad to the point where some of these are even preaching the gospel, 
right? But not for a good reason. They're, they're preaching the gospel because they know it's going to get at Paul. It's going to make him feel bad. But what does Paul say even to that reality, right? In Philippians 1.18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And think about how horrible that would be to know there are people who hate you, and they're only doing these good things of preaching the gospel to get at you. And he says, even though they're doing it for the wrong reason, even though they're trying to stab me in the back, I rejoice because the gospel is going forward. That is the posture that every single Christian needs to have, that whatever hardship we're going through, whatever difficulty we're experiencing, we have reason to say, praise God. And how crazy is that statement, right? This goes against everything that you and I naturally think about when we go through hard times. Because whenever we have a difficulty, we don't view it as a good thing. We view it as a bad thing, don't we? And we do everything we can to get away from it, to run away from the problems, to fill ourselves with our other positive emotions so we don't have to deal with the circumstances that's in front of us. And there are so many ways that we can try to do this, right? Some of us might like retail therapy. You're going through a difficult season of life. So what do you do? Well, it's Black Friday. Let me just buy a bunch of stuff so I can feel better. Oh, I finally got that TV that I really wanted. I feel so good now, right? You try to numb the pain of what you're going through by buying stuff, and it's never really dealing with the heart of the issues. For some of us, you respond uh, to difficulties by lashing out in anger or sinfully at other people, right? It makes you cranky. And so you, you yell at people just so you feel better because you're releasing some of the anger that's inside of your heart. But that's not honoring God. You know, for other of us, maybe you're, you're taking, you know, medication or pills, right? You're saying, this is such a bad situation. I just want to feel good inside. And so here's a medication that I know will numb the pain for a bit. So I feel a little bit better. And maybe some of you, as you're experiencing difficulties, your desire is to run away or to move. Maybe that's why some of you moved to Missouri because you left a state that you just didn't like what was going on there. Or maybe you quit your job because you just can't handle whatever pressure that you're going through at that moment. You say, this is too much. I don't want it. In so much of how we live our life, we view trials and circumstances as bad things to get away from. And I'm not saying there's wisdom in making decisions in which you do move and do all types of different things. But the question is, how are we viewing our circumstances? Because see, what James is trying to say is that we should not seek to run, but to rejoice. Our goal as Christians is not that we see the hardships and say, I don't like that. It's that we see it and say, God, thank you. You are doing something in my life. I have a reason to praise your name for what I'm going through here. And I know that's counterintuitive, but the whole Christian life is counterintuitive, is it not? We are called to rejoice even in the most difficult of circumstances in whatever we're going through to say, thank you, God. And the reason we can do this is not because God is giving us some impossible command to follow, right? It's not that he's saying, I want you to do this because a holy person would, but there's no way you can one of the benefits we have as Christians, one of our encouragements is that God always gives us the ability to follow whatever it is he calls us to do, right? And so if he is calling us to rejoice in our difficulties, that means it's actually possible. We can. And the reason that we're able to rejoice is not because we love the trial in itself, but we rejoice because what the trial is doing in us. 
Right? The reason we rejoice is we know that God is always using it to refine us in ways that we never thought possible. And, and that leads us to our second point, the cause of our joy. If you get one thing from this morning's message, right, take this one phrase away. Suffering sanctifies the saints. Whenever you're going through suffering in various forms, whatever it is you're experiencing, God is using it to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus Christ, to depend more on him, to, to realize the idols that you've been holding on to. God uses it all to sanctify you and make you more like the person you're called to be. And he explains this in two brief phrases. This is just simply verse one and verse four, or verse three and verse four. First in verse three, he says this, that suffering leads to steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that word here is the idea of endurance, even in the midst of opposition. The ability to remain firm, to persevere in what you're called to do, to have fortitude, even when there's resistance. And so in the context here, steadfastness is the idea that you're able to stay focused on God, remain faithful to God, even in the midst of your difficulty. That even though you're going through some type of hardship and thing that you don't like, you're able to say, God, I am still trusting in you. I am still loving you. I am still serving you, even though this is hard. And the beautiful reality, what James is saying here is that as you go through trials, right, this is the testing of your faith in which your faith is encountering some type of difficulty, God is using it to slowly work in your heart, make you more and more resolute in what you believe and in your relationship with him, such that three months after the trial, six months going through the trial, who you were in the Lord is not the person you were when it first started. Your faith is stronger. It's very much like if you think about going through an illness that's just recurring, right? Let's say it's a, a type of cancer that you're experiencing. The first time is going to be devastating. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard. And you're going to have those moments of saying, why am I going through this? But as you work through that, right, as you pray to the Lord, as he helps you and refines you, you're okay. You're able to get through it and say, Lord, even though this has been difficult, I still love and trust you. Which means then that if you experience it a second time, you're able to recover just a little bit faster. Right? Your faith is already resolute and strong. You're not going to just instantly give up. And then maybe you go through it a third time and you're even more steadfast. And a fourth time and you're more resolute. And each time as you're going through the, the hardship and you're persevering and you're trusting the Lord, your faith is stronger than it once was. Right? You don't give up on the Lord. You are persevering even in the trials and as you build this ability, as God refines your character, you see in verse 4 that this endurance over time refines every aspect of your spiritual life. All right, it says this, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James is not saying here that if you are going through trials, you will one day become the perfect man. You will never sin again. You will be good. You've reached level 100 of the, of the Christian life. You're good and you're done. That's not what he's getting at here. See, this idea of maturity, it's the idea of maturity, that you're not perfect in this lifetime, but you're becoming more and more the type of believer that you're called to be. 
And the reason that this is the case is this is saying that as you remain steadfast in your trial, God does not only teach you to trust him more, he actually refines every single area of your life, right? When we suffer, God sanctifies us in a holistic kind of way. He exposes areas of sin and idolatry that we didn't even realize were there that we didn't even realize was, was the crux of that issue, but he makes us realize that there's a real sin issue going on in our lives and that we need to turn and trust in him. And I think about this idea as kind of like a wobble board. I'm currently going through physical therapy for my leg and it's been a very painful process as people often say, um, but I was told it's going to be literally pain and torture. So I've been trying to just embrace that, know that it's coming. But one of the exercises that they're having me do is use what they call a wobble board. And basically, if you've never seen this, it's kind of like half of a bouncy ball that's duct taped onto like a table, right? So you have like a board that's maybe like a rectangle or square, and then you see half of a ball that's just kind of there. And the idea is that, you know, when you step on it or whatever exercise you're doing, that uneven surface being a bouncy ball forces your, your leg or your body part to move in all kinds of crazy ways, right? Because the surface is not sturdy. And what that does is it forces all different parts of your leg, all the different muscles and ligaments and fibers, however it works, to fire off and re-support your leg. And so when you first get on this, or at least when I first did, my leg was wobbling like crazy, right? Because this was the injured leg. I had torn my Achilles. But what happens is as you're going on that, every single time, your leg gets a little bit more steady and then a little bit more stable until eventually after several weeks of doing this exercise, what's happening is all of those weak muscle fibers are being revealed. All those weak muscles are forced to be strengthened. So eventually, you're able to stand on that board without actually moving your foot anymore. Right? It's a wonderful, wonderful exercise. But here's the thing. The suffering that we go through is like a spiritual wobble board. When you and I are going through the hardships of this life, the trials that God graciously puts into our way, he is showing and refining so many areas of your life that you didn't even know you had an issue with. Right, where maybe you, know, you are struggling with an illness and you had no idea how much you worshiped your health. You had no idea how much you worshiped the ability to get up and move wherever you want to. Go to the store and back within 10 minutes or whatever it may be. You didn't realize just how selfish you were being with your own life and how you're viewing uh, circumstances and people and everything was really about you. But when you're forced to slow down, God is helping to see, I've been doing all of this for me and that's not okay. And of course, maybe you had no idea how little you actually worshiped and trusted and loved the Lord. But then suddenly, if you're sitting at home for hours by yourself with your own thoughts, you have no one else to talk to. And then you realize the state of your relationship with God. See, through suffering, God refines us holistically. He sanctifies us in all these different areas that we weren't even aware of. And, and that's exactly what James is saying here. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That as you continue to pursue obedience to the Lord, even in those hard times, you continue to say, yes, Lord, in whatever way he might be calling to you through the pages of his word, God is slowly maturing every single part of you to realize the idols that you've been clinging on to and the ways that you've been seeing him unbiblically, all the different ways God is sanctifying you. 
And see, friends, this is why a Christian can rejoice in our trials. As a believer, we're not some type of spiritual masochist, right? Where we say, I love pain, just, just let me suffer. Unless you like running, then you are a masochist, right? But whatever it may be, right? We don't look and say, I want to hurt. And when we go through hardships, we realize that there is true reason for grief as we're experiencing the things of life. And yet the reason that we can rejoice is we know that God is working through that to make us more like him. It's why you hear in 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, what does Peter try to say here? Why is it that the persecuted Christians can rejoice? It's because persecution, the trials they're going through, is like a furnace with gold. It's going to get really, really hot, and that's going to hurt. That's going to burn, right? That's going to melt all kinds of stuff. No, if you were in there, no piece of gold would enjoy that. But what that does is through the heating process, right, it melts off all the other impurities. It rises to the surface and separates from the gold so that through that work of the furnace, the gold is now refined and pure and as it should be. And see, this is what God is doing through our trials. He's refining you so you become more like his son. You are becoming more like spiritual gold. And so that's why when you go through a hardship, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be chipper. It doesn't mean you're always going to smile and say, everything's feeling great right now. But you still have a sense of joy in your soul. Right? You can have sorrow for what you're going through being hard but still have the sense of peace and this gladness of your heart because you're saying, God, I know that you're using this for good purpose. I, I know that even though this is really hard, you're still working in my heart to make me more like you. And that is something I want. That is something I can be joyful about. But this requires then that as believers, we what? We embrace the trials that God's bringing into our lives. Right? That's why verse four says, let steadfastness have its full effect. See, when we go through the hardships of life, the, the proper response, which we should be doing, is to embrace it. Say, Lord, I know you are seeking to refine me. I welcome that. I lean into that. Show me the ways that you want me to grow. I am ready. But how many times you go through the hardships and instead you run away, where you start to get bitter at God for what he's doing? You get angry with him or with other people or whatever else. You say, I don't want this. You reject it. You turn away from the Lord. And see, the reality is when you respond to trials like that, God's sanctifying work is not going to take place. Right? If you're fighting him every single part of the way, he's not going to be working in you the way that he wants to. And so what we need in order to be sanctified by trials is to say, God, yes. God, I welcome that. Refine me as you want me to be refined. Help me to learn the lessons you want me to learn so I can grow and become more like your son. This is what we need to be able to do so we can then rejoice. The joy does not come automatically as believers, but it comes as we accept and recognize what God is doing in our lives. And so a question this morning for all of you is, how are you embracing the trials of your life? 
I know you're going through things this morning. I know that there are circumstances in your life that you recognize are hard and not pleasant, but how are you responding to them? Are you looking to the Lord and saying, God, you are good even through this moment. I know that you have a purpose. I accept it. Or are you seeking ways of actually just running away? See, because if you are doing that, if your first instinct is to say, God, I, I want to get away from this, it might be a sign that there are idols in your heart, things that you're actually worshiping more than God, things that you're holding as more important than God. And that could be things as simple as security in life, as comfort, as having a sense of stability that you know what's going to happen tomorrow, all types of things which are not bad in themselves. But when we start to worship them, that means that when we go through trials, there is no way you're going to be able to say, praise God for this circumstance. That only happens when we're able to repent of those idols and say, God, it is so important that I become more like you. See, this is the tricky part. The only thing that we are promised in this life, our goal in life is to become more like Christ. And that's the question I want to ask for you this morning. Is becoming like Christ enough for you? As you think about everything you're doing in this life, your goals and aspirations for career, for family, for grandkids, whatever it is that's coming up, you are not guaranteed any of that. The only thing that we are guaranteed is that God will work in our life to make us more like his son. Right? That's the focus in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right? God is using all things to make us more like his son. Or what we look forward to as we get to heaven is to not only know him, but is that we are becoming more like him. And so in this lifetime, you're not guaranteed a great life. You're not guaranteed that everything's going to work out just as you want. Your life might suck, but God has a purpose behind it. God is working through those hardships to refine your character, to help you see that you need to become more like his son. And friends, is that enough for you in this life? Are you content, even if you lose everything else, to say, God I now know you, I now love you, and in that I rejoice. And that praise be your name. Thank you for bringing that circumstance I would have never in a million years wanted to experience. But I know that you used it in my life for my good, so thank you for that. Now, we're not guaranteed that if you endure for a little bit, you're going to suddenly have this great epiphany or experience. If you just endure that horrible work situation, then suddenly you're going to get the promotion that you want. Right? Then you're going to feel more spiritual and everything's going to be great. You're not guaranteed anything other than knowing that you are pleasing and honoring the Lord and he is refining you to become more like him. So is that something that you want in this life? Is that something that you are content with? Because that is the only way that we can actually rejoice in the hard times of life. It's not by holding on to the things of this world. And I know that this is a, a difficult thing to hear. Right? None of us, again, naturally look at the hardships and say, oh, yes, I know that I can lose everything and Jesus is enough. We're not naturally there. But that's why I love the encouragement that God always gives us in his word, to know that we're not alone in our pursuit of these truths. We're not the only ones trying to do this in our own strength. God actually helps us. 
And that's the theme of this last section of our passage here, the, the comfort that we have towards our joy. The comfort is that we know that God will actually help us to be able to do this. And it's a very, very simple application for us. What do you do when you don't know how to respond to your trial? When you don't know how to rejoice in the midst of your difficulty? You pray. You say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. That's exactly what you see in verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Right? This is a promise. This is something that is true for every single believer. If you're lacking wisdom, just ask God. See, wisdom here is not how we often think about it in a secular sense. Wisdom is not the ability to speak in fortune cookies or to have these really cryptic sayings where people they walk away like, I don't really get it, but it sounds really profound. Biblical wisdom is the ability to know how to honor God in every single circumstance of life. It's often described as skill for godly living. That's what biblical wisdom is here. And notice the context of where James is bringing up the idea of wisdom. People often use this verse as a general cry for wisdom, which I think is true and is an application or implication. But what's the focus of what James is getting at here? It's specifically wisdom for knowing how to navigate your trials. The idea is that if you don't know how to rejoice in your dark circumstance, if you don't know how to see it as a good thing, this is where you can ask for God's wisdom. You're not alone in your desire to be able to pursue that. God will help you. And the focus of this verse is that God will help us to the degree that we cry out to him. And notice that it says that God gives generously to all without reproach. I love that word generously because it's saying God will give as much as we need. There's no reservations. He is happy to do it. He is willing to do it. We just need to ask. It would be like if you had a relative who was secretly this multi-billionaire and he's saying, there is no way I'm going to be able to spend all this money. So guess what? Have as much as you want right? I would love to just give you as many bills as you can hold on to, right? That is a generous individual. And how would you not want to say, okay, sure, right? I'll, I'll take some, right? I'll be able to, you're, you're offering, you're being generous. And so I'm glad to receive that. Well, see, that's exactly how we need to be viewing this blessing or promise here, is that God is generous in his desire to give us the wisdom to go through our trials. He wants to help us, And the idea that he's generously giving without reproach is that he's never reserved about it. It's not like he's going to secretly hold a grudge against you for asking for wisdom. He is fully open and willing to help. And so how can we not ask him for help? How can we not pray and say, Lord, help me to navigate the circumstance that I know I would never be able to get through on my own? God will help if we simply ask. See, we're encouraged to pray through the pages of Scripture because we know that the God that we serve is a good God, right? He's not this cosmic genie that's nice one day and angry the next. He is always willing to help because he's loving Father. And I love how Jesus describes in Matthew 7, 9 to 10. He says this, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good good things to those who ask him? He will give you good things if you simply ask. Right? And the point that Jesus is making is that all of us are sinners, right? All of us are evil by nature, but if even flawed, wicked people who are so self-seeking and, and, and sinful in how they interact with people, if even those individuals know how to care for their kids, how much more will the perfect, holy, righteous, great God of the universe help you with what's actually good? If even sinful fathers do their best to help their kids, how much more the greatest father? And that is the father that we have as believers, is it not? that he is the righteous God who loves and cares for us and he will help if we just ask. And so how much are you asking this week? As you go through the difficulties of life, how much are you begging the Lord, trusting that he will respond to your prayer? Because the one important detail is that we need to be praying in faith. And that's what you see in verse 6 to verse 8 as we finish up this passage here. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And I think that the way that you understand the doubting person here is that this is an individual that's not believing and trusting in the character of God. This is a person that doesn't just sometimes struggle with it, but they're defined by their doubt. It's an individual that maybe they do come to church and maybe they call themselves a believer, but they say, well, I don't really know about God. Uh, he might answer, he might not, but, you know, sometimes he's a good God and sometimes he's not. So I'm going to ask, but I really don't know if he's going to come through and help me. Right? James is saying that type of person that's marked by their distrust, that's not fully knowing and believing the character of God, that person is like the ocean waves. If you've ever been to one, because there's not one here in Missouri. Right? But if you've gone to an ocean where you've been in that giant body of water and you know that naturally you just kind of go up and down with the, the motion, you have no control about how high or how low you are, that is the individual who is filled with doubt. Now, there's no way that God is going to respond to that kind of prayer. They are not stable in who they are. I see, because the prayer that God responds to is the prayer of faith or trust, in which we are saying, God, I know your word. I know your character. I know what you say to be absolutely true. And this is a truth that I can take to the bank. And therefore, I cry out to you. Help me. And I know that you will help me as you read God's word and read the pages of his wisdom, as you cry out and beg him for a spiritual transformation, he will do that work in your heart so that the way that you see your trials is different. So that you will see your circumstance as a reason to rejoice in. Even though you're filled with pain, even though every day might be a struggle, you can still say praise be the name of our God because I know he's using this to refine me. And I think one important thing to mention is that that phrase about the person who's doubting, it, it's not talking about a believer who has flaws, because we all have flaws. And there's going to be moments in our Christian life in which our confidence is temporarily shaken. But, but the confidence we have as believers is that even in that moment, we can still cry out to God for help. 
Right? I, I always go back to, to Mark chapter 9 where you're seeing the demoniac and, and it's the, the story where even the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And so you have the father of this demon-possessed person who's coming up to Jesus and saying, well, if you can do anything, can you help? Right? And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And what does he say? I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, to some degree, I am trusting in you, but I know I am flawed. There, there are aspects in which I don't fully trust in you. Help me even with that. And I think that's the prayer that every single Christian is able to pray as well, that maybe there are those times in which you are so burdened by what you're going through, you don't know how you're going to get through it. Pray to God. You're, you're in the moment where you don't know exactly how things are going to work out. Pray to God. Ask him to give you the faith that you need because he will respond to the genuine cry for help. And so whether you're in a moment in which you're saying, I 100% know how to trust in God, we're still called to pray to him. And even if you're not sure what's going to happen as you're going through your circumstance, you still should pray to him. Trust in the God of the universe because he will not disappoint you. And so the last question for you this morning, how do you actually view God today? How is your relationship with him truly? Not, not the kind of theology that you can write on paper that you say, oh, I believe all these truths about God, but behind closed doors when you're going through difficulty or hardship by yourself, how do you truly see God? How is your relationship with him actually in reality? Is it marked by the sense of trust, the sense of love, the sense of knowledge that he is always working for your good, even through these hard times, and being like him is enough? Or do you secretly, in the, in the bottom of your heart, think, you know, he's sometimes like that ogre. He doesn't always help when I need him to. He's not always really there for me. Right? Where are you truly in your relationship with God? And are you honest about that? Because wherever you may be, that's why we can turn to the scriptures. Because as you read page after page, you're, you're seeing the character of God on display being poured out through all the different books of the Bible. And so if you're in that season where you know that you're not seeing God as you should, yes, pray and cry out to him. But read the pages of his word so you can see who he is to see his character on display, how he works through the Israelites, how he works through sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and continues to work in the church today. In all things that we go through, we have reason to read God's word and learn to trust in him. And so however you're viewing him today in whatever ways it's flawed and marked with difficulty and error and mistrust, turn to his word so that you may know who he truly is so that you can actually experience the blessings of this passage here. As one last thing before we'll, we'll close. You know, trials are used in a believer's life to refine us and, and help us to trust in him more and become more sanctified. But sometimes the hardships that we go through in life can also be used to expose false faith. Now, there are many people who call themselves Christians for various reasons. They grew up going to a church, they're dating a person that's a Christian, whatever it is, but they actually don't really believe, or maybe they think they do, but it's not until they go through a deep hardship in their life where they realize everything they said, everything they, they sang about was actually a sham. And if that's you this morning, 
where you're going through hardships and you're going through difficulties and you're realizing you're not actually saved, cry out to God. Right? Salvation is available even today if you trust in Him. And so turn to Him, worship Him, so that you may receive the Holy Spirit and receive all these benefits in our trials. To know that you don't have to go through your hardship alone. You're not going through the suffering alone. You have God who is working in you for your good. And so wherever you are today, there is still reason to praise his name. That's the whole point of James 1 here, is it not? That we have reason to be thankful because God works even in the bad for our good. He is refining us through all types of turmoil in ways that we would have never uh, known on our own or pursued on our own. But through every single difficulty as a believer, God is slowly refining you, slowly growing you, slowly transforming you so that on the day that we actually see him, which he will accomplish in every single believer, we will be truly perfect. And for that, we can rejoice. For that, we can say, thank you, God. I think one of the best examples of this truth is what you see in the book of Job. That an individual who, from a worldly perspective, had everything. All of the money, all of the wealth, all of the family members, anything that a person could want, and yet God, in his goodness, took it all away. He lost the wealth. He lost his family. He even lost his health to the point that his wife turns to him and says, curse God and die. Right? That's such a horrible statement to make, but that was the moment that he was in. And yet Job never lost his faith. He knew that God had a purpose. And he says in Job 23.10, he says, But he, that is God, knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Even Job knew that through the hardship, God had a reason, and he was going to make him more and more sanctified. That is what we are promised. And that is the reason to rejoice. That's the reason that a Christian can say, thank you, God, in whatever circumstance you're going in. And so I would just urge you as you walk away from today, may you be thankful for the trials. May you worship God, praise him, rejoice, knowing that he has used them, he is using them, and he will continue to use them for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.